Matthew 26, our text this morning, verses 36 to 46. As you're turning, I just want to point up kind of uh, the, I think part of the task in a fellowship, a conference like this, when you're the cleanup hitter, uh, is to just kind of remind you uh, and point out how God has been at work uh, in our midst over the last 48 hours or so. Uh, We have had uh, woven through our time together a theme of prayer, Uh, both in the devotional readings and in Dr. Kelly's sermon last night, we have been urged uh, to the holy work of, of word and prayer. Uh, and we've been reminded as well by uh, Dr. Thomas uh, that these disciplines, uh, this working out your salvation in word and prayer, it's both holy effort and whole dependence upon Christ. Uh, and it's this truth, uh, the truth that's rooted in the gospel, uh, that we proclaim. Uh, a truth that ultimately centers on these scenes of uh, the Via Dolorosa. The scene we'll look at this morning at Gethsemane, the scene that uh, our dear friend and brother David Strain looked at yesterday morning of the cross and the experience of our Lord. Uh, as we proclaim these truths to our people, they're not simply abstract truths. Uh, we proclaim these truths because we love them. The aim of our charge is love. And so I hope you see how the Lord has been at work, uh, weaving these things together and kind of shouting at us in certain ways uh, the past 48 hours. Um, it's been a great joy for me to be back uh, fall and spring in the classroom at RTS. Uh, and this semester, uh, my joy has been to do my class on Edwards. Uh, and it's been particularly fun uh, because I've it's been able to be done in kind of a seminar style. I've had four uh, intrepid souls uh, working with me uh, over the semester. And uh, as we've been uh, walking through Edwards, one of the themes that Uh, has come through the class because it's one that has so impacted me over 20 years of reading and thinking and studying and writing about Edwards is that true religion consists, for the most part, in holy affections. Uh, If that's the case, though, how do we stir up our holy affections? Uh, Or maybe better, how does God stir up these holy affections within us? So we've been looking at that in Edwards, but, but I actually have gotten the answer from our Baptist brother, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, In one particular sermon in the Banner of Truth set that came out a couple of years ago, Majesty and Misery, Spurgeon uh, reminds us uh, that the way we stir up holy affections or the way that God stirs up our holy affections is by taking us to these scenes of the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. Spurgeon says this, Christ's sorrows have a most sanctifying influence upon all who consider them with believing love. I am persuaded that if we lived more in the atmosphere of the cross, sin would lose its power and every grace would flourish. When we draw very near to him and have fellowship with him in his sufferings, we raise a hue and cry against the sin which slew him. And resolve to be revenged upon it by departing from it ourselves and by warring against it whenever we see it in others. The cross is that holy implement with which we make war with sin till it be utterly destroyed. Blessed and holy then are the thoughts which are aroused by our great sacrifice. 
And so this morning, brothers, my great desire is that as we draw near these scenes that take Jesus to Golgotha, to Skull, to die for sinners like you and me, that we might see his dying love and the power of this affection might stir up our affections and drive out sin from our hearts and compel us and impel us in our ministries. So with that framework in mind, we come to our text. But before we read it together, we need God's help. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we pray now that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, that our eyes of faith might be opened and we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Holy Spirit, come, come and stir up our affections so that we might draw near to Christ and we might see his beauty and excellency and we might follow him with all of our hearts and we might turn from our sin and love him more. We love, after all, Jesus, because you first loved us. Remind us of this this morning, we pray, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here. While I go over there and pray and taking with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of the time, when you go hiking, you go to the parking area, uh, you leave your car, and you hike up the mountain. Uh, For example, a couple of years ago, one of my ruling elders, uh, Louis Benton, and I uh, went to hike Half Dome at Yosemite. And so we drove to the parking area and we left our car and we hiked to the trailhead and then we hiked up, up 700 some stairs, 
up to uh, the subdome, up to half dome, climbed up to the top of the rock. And there we were on top of the valley. We went up, up, up. But there's actually one place that you hike where you don't park and go up, but you actually park and go down. And that's the Grand Canyon. When you, when you drive through the Grand Canyon, leave your car, depending on where you are, uh, you have 10 to 14 miles from the rim to the river, uh, but you have about six to 8,000 feet of elevation change. And so you start out going down, uh, and then you go around the bend and the switchbacks, and you keep going down. And before you think that you can't go down any further, you go down some more. And then you finally are seeing the river, but you're still going down. When you hike the canyon, you're going down, down, down. As Jesus is hiking this Via Dolorosa, as he is walking the way of suffering, this way of humiliation... Our Lord is not hiking up. He's hiking down. He is he's going down, 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 all the way to Golgotha, all the way to the skull. Beginning in chapter 26, the, the scenes will unfold and there will be various stations on this way to the cross. Stations of preparation, stations of the Passover, station of darkness, station in Pilate's judgment hole. And finally, he will come to Golgotha and ultimately will go all the way down to the grave. But here in this text before us, Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46, we have the station of Gethsemane. And in many ways, this station is the most difficult, the most Painful. It, it's not the nadir. It's not the absolute bottom. No, that is Golgotha, as Jesus will know the cross in his full experience. But this is the most painful because this is the place of struggle. This is the place where Jesus in his humanity will wrestle and weep. The place where the cup of God's wrath will be extended to Jesus. It will be offered to him and he will end by taking it. These are scenes that you have become so familiar with in your ministry. Scenes that you know quite well. But I want to remind you again. And my prayer has been as I prayed for this day and prayed for you men is that we would not only hear and even see, but that we would feel. That we would have our holy affections stirred in such a way that we would feel this text and these scenes and be reminded, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he doing this? Why is he walking down the Via Dolorosa? Why does he come to Gethsemane? Why does he wrestle? Why does he weep? It's because he loves you. Jesus loves you. The Father loves you. He loves you so much that He sent His only Son to do this. To take the cup of the wrath of God that belonged to you. 
the Holy Spirit loves you. The Spirit of the living God continued upon Jesus and bore Him up all the way down, down, down to Golgotha. This is part of the, what Thomas Watson calls the, the plot of free grace and the pure design of love. That before eternity, but before time began and eternity passed, the Father, Son, and Spirit contracted together in the Council of Peace and they said, Who shall go for us in order to redeem my people? And Jesus said, I will, because I love them. In his mind's eye, as he considered you through eternity, he said, I will go because I love them. And not just y'all in general, but each one of you. Father, Son, Spirit loves you. That's why this is happening. That's why this is necessary. That is why Jesus is here wrestling and weeping. And according to Luke's gospel, sweating drops of blood. It's for you. And so as we consider this text this morning, I want you to cry out to God as I'm preaching, Lord, help me feel this. Not just know it, not just preach it, not just speak about it, not just share it, but to feel it. Because your will will only be as your highest affections are. And if you would run for sin and run to Christ, if you would love your people enough to tell them the truth about themselves, if you would go to others that you come across and share the gospel, you must love. But the only way you will love is through the power of an affection that will drive out all other loves. How do you get it? You come here to these scenes and you ask God in Christ by the Spirit to stir up your holy affections. And so Jesus has left the upper room. He has crossed with his disciples down to the valley, across the brook Kidron, up the hill to the Mount of Olives. He's still within the the proper vicinity of Jerusalem. And so he is still fit and clean, according to rabbinical law, to continue to participate in the Passover scenes. He has come here, according to John's gospel, many times. This is actually the first time he shows up in Gethsemane in Matthew's gospel. But he knows the place, and Judas, as we'll see later in Matthew's gospel, knows the place. And so he comes to this familiar place that is called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane simply means olive press. While the entire mount has olive trees, we think that this particular section of the mount had a concentration. Perhaps it was an olive orchard. Perhaps it was a place where in the midst of the orchard there was a press for pressing out the the fruit of the trees and gaining olive oil or what have you. Was it fenced? Was it gated? We're not sure. But Jesus tells eight of his disciples, sit here. And he takes three more with him. What were the eight doing? Were they guarding the gate? Were they to watch just in case the enemies come? We're not told. But Jesus makes a division. He leaves eight here and he takes Peter, James and John with him further in to the garden. Now, these three had seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in his glory. But now these three will see him 
on the Mount of Olives in his sorrow. What does Jesus say? Verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. How remarkable it is that Jesus takes these three men and says, watch with me. To be sure, Jesus loved them. Uh, To be sure, they were his friends. After all, John's Gospel tells us that having loved them, he loved them to the end. And later, greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. But, But as you read through Matthew's Gospel, there's always a kind of distance. Uh, not a, a, a wrong kind of distance, but the kind of distance that you may have experienced with your a seminary professor that you loved or a pastor that you interned with. You, you know that they love you. Uh, you know that they care for you. You would even call them your friend, but there's still a distance there that you, you would not, you, you could not cross. And that's how it's been through Matthew's gospel with Jesus and the disciples. But here, what does he say? In his humanity, as he's going to wrestle, as he's going to weep, as he's going to sorrow. Come with me. Come with me. I need you. Watch with me. Because I am sorrowful. I am very sorrowful. I am sorrowful to the point of death. I am so sorrowful, it is killing me. Echo here is back, isn't it, to Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? It's an echo that will echo forward to Hebrews chapter 5, where the writer of the Hebrews speaks of those days in his flesh when Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. The echoes reverberate backwards and forwards as Jesus tells his friends, I am very sorrowful and it is killing me. Why? Why is he sorrowful? Why is he so sorrowful that he could die? Well, it's not because he's afraid of dying. We shouldn't think that our our Savior has less physical courage than a Roman soldier who would be willing to lay down his life for Caesar. Or we shouldn't think that our Savior has less physical courage than his own disciples, 11 of the 12 of whom will actually be martyred for the cause of Christ. No, I don't think that he's sorrowful to the point of death because he's afraid to die. After all, from Matthew's first chapter all the way to this point, we've known again and again that it's the, the, the purpose of the Son of Man for coming is to die. Four times by this point, Jesus has said, I am going to die. I am going to be killed. I am going to be crucified. Chapter 16 and chapter 17, chapter 20, chapter 26. Four times Jesus says, I am going to die. I am going to be killed. I am going to be crucified. And so I don't think that the Savior comes to this place and to this point and is somehow afraid to die. So why is he sorrowful? 
Why is he so sorrowful, so distracted, so divided that he would die? It is killing him. Why? Well, it's because of the cup. I mean, that's what he prays. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, what is the cup? Or perhaps better, what's in the cup? Well, certainly suffering and death is in the cup. At least in Matthew's version of this, uh, in Matthew chapter 21, you remember when the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, are angling for positions within the kingdom. And they're so brave to ask Jesus what they want that they send their mama and say, Mama, go go ask Jesus for the good positions at his right hand and his left hand. And so she does. And Jesus knows what's up and he doesn't even talk to Mama. He talks to James and John. And what does he say? Are you able to drink the cup that I am going to drink? And I think somewhat naively they say, we are able And then Jesus says, you will drink the cup that I'm going to drink. And church tradition tells us that they do, in fact, drink that cup of suffering and death. And so, yes, suffering and death is in the cup. But what else is in the cup that the Father is holding out to Jesus here in Gethsemane? All of your sin. All of your guilt. All of your shame, all of your corruption is in that cup. Now think of it. That means all of your pride and all of your arrogance and all of the times you haughtily cut someone off with your words, it's in the cup. All of your lust, all of your furtive glances at internet pornography, All of the times you looked at that woman and you actually thought to yourself, I would bed her if I could. All in the cup. All of your lying. All of the times, even over the last couple of days, when people asked you, how's it going? And you said, it's going great, when you knew it was a lie. All of the times where you've inflated your numbers just to make yourself look better. It's all in the cup. All of your Sabbath breaking is in the cup. All of your rebellion against authority, all the times you've cut off your elders with word or action, all of your uh, times where you've been rude to your inferiors, it's all in the cup. There is nothing of all of your sin, all of your sinning that is accepted. It's all there, a rolling, foaming mass of sin and guilt and shame. But that's not all that's in the cup. God's wrath and curse is in the cup. All of the wrath that you deserve for your sin and your sinning, all of the curse that you deserve for your sin and sinning, it's all in the cup. We heard of this cup in our reading this morning from Isaiah 51, but it's also in Psalm 75, verse 5, where in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, except for the elect, except for you. You're part of the wicked of the earth, but you don't drain this cup down to the dregs. It's being held out to your Savior. 
And the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, as He sees this cup being held out to Him with all of our sin and all of your guilt and all of your shame and all of your corruption and all of God's wrath and all of His curse, He repels, He recoils because of the stinking stench. And He says, My Father, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass by me. Why does he say that? Well, it's not only because of the cup being held out to him, but he knows what will happen if he takes it. His sorrows will be multiplied because of separation from the Father. He will be absolutely alone. Some of you struggle profoundly with being absolutely alone. I have a dear friend with whom I worked in a previous place who could not stay in his office to do basic administrative tasks because having his door shut meant that he was alone and he he just couldn't do it. And so he would go into his office for five minutes. My desk was right outside his office. He would go into his office for five minutes and then he would be bounced back out because he couldn't be alone. And he would walk all over the, the place where we worked because he had to be with people. Some of you are just like that. You fear desperately being alone. Even the introverted among us who would love the idea of being alone for 48 hours. You wouldn't want to be absolutely alone. And yet Jesus knows that if he takes this cup that's being held out to him, that is exactly what he will experience. He will experience the reality of being absolutely alone. And Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, has never experienced that. He's never experienced that. From eternity past, Father, Son, Spirit, we're a family of three, as Jonathan Edwards said. Knowing eternal communion, delight in one another, the love of the Father and the Son being exchanged between them as the Holy Spirit. There was never a time when the eternal Son of God was absolutely alone. But Jesus in his humanity as the God-man would know that aloneness if he takes the cup. And he's already beginning to experience it here in the garden. That's what verses 40 and 41 tell you. He prays and then he comes back to the disciples and he finds them sleeping. And he says to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? This is Peter who had said, even if everyone else denies you, even if I have to die for you, I will not deny you. And he can't stay awake. Just just before this scene, that's what Peter says. But he leaves Jesus absolutely alone. When the Savior asked him, watch with me, be with me, bear me up with your prayers, and he could not stay awake. Jesus was alone. He's going to leave Gethsemane. He's going to be taken to the council in the darkness of that that mistrial is going to go to Pilate's judgment hall. The disciples will scatter. Peter will deny him. 
And he will have human justice fail him at every point. Human compassion will fail him. And he will end up on a cross alone. But to be sure, there's two thieves on either side. There's a crowd around him, and yet he will be alone in the midst of the crowd. And in Matthew's telling, the thieves don't worship him. They, they mock him along with the crowd, and he will know what it is to be alone. But then at the, the, third, at the ninth hour, at three o'clock in the afternoon, after three hours of darkness, when the father turns his face away and Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Absolutely alone, separated, because the Son had become sin for you and me. And don't miss it. Why is He doing this? Why is Jesus wrestling and weeping in the garden? Why is he sorrowing? Why is he going to experience separation, abandonment? Why is he doing this? It's because he loves you. It's for you. It's for me. And that's the struggle there. But in the midst of the struggle... As the Spirit helps him, the prayer doesn't end with, let this cup pass from me. No, Jesus surrenders. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We read that all together without a pause. I tend to think that Matthew is is contracting there. I think the first part gets said and there's wrestling and praying. And then this is the last part of the prayer. The beginning and the end, perhaps. But we still have this end. The Savior says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is this? But Jesus' final demonstration that he will live By every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. What is this but Jesus' demonstration that he will not bow down to the enemy or bow down to his own place, but he will worship and serve the Father alone? What is this but proof that Jesus will not put the Father to the test, but will accomplish the mission on which he's been sent, on which he agreed to go in eternity past? Here is Jesus' final temptation, and he has passed through. He surrenders to the Father in complete obedience. This second Adam saying, yes, I will take the cup. And he says, I'm willing to drink it down. I'm willing to drink it down to the bottom for God's people. I'm willing to do this. For love. Twice more he prays. But the prayers are different, aren't they? Verse 42, again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It's a different prayer. It doesn't have the same note of wrestling. Already Jesus has made his determination 
Already he has said, Father, yes, if this must be, your will be done. I am prepared to take the cup. And he takes this cup with all of our sin and all of our corruption, and all of our shame and God's wrath and curse. And he takes it at that point. He doesn't drink it at that point. He'll be carrying it with him through those scenes. But he willingly takes it so that he might become the source of eternal salvation, the writer of Hebrews says, for all men. Do you feel it? Do you see You, do you know, not in your head, but in your heart, are your affections stirred by the sight of Christ who loves you and is, given, is giving Himself for you? Because from this moment, Jesus rises in a completely different character. He enters the garden saying, oh, I'm sorrowful, my friends, watch with me. But He rises completely different. His face is sealed. He says to his disciples, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He rises with his face set, with his cup in the hand. He goes to, uh, he's betrayed into the hands of those who will take him to the Sanhedrin. He will go down the Via Dolorosa to, to Pilate's judgment hall. He will walk the last steps to Golgotha. And there at three o'clock in the afternoon, after three hours of darkness, at the exact moment on the east side of Jerusalem, the lambs are being slaughtered for Passover. Jesus drinks the cup. And he drinks it down, 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 all the way to the dregs. And then he says, it is finished. It is finished. There's nothing more in the cup. And that's why we say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we love you. We know that you are ours. We know that for the folly of our sin, you resigned heaven's glory for a moment. And you came and walked the Via Dolorosa all the way to Calvary for us. Lord, we see here your love. And this was love. Not that we love God, but that you loved us. But Jesus, you came as a propitiation for our sins. Lord, help us feel it. Stir our affections. Drive us away from sin. Drive us to your side. Bow to the fountain we fly. Help us, Savior. Else we die. Grant us this, Lord, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your songbooks and turn to, toward the back to the song, In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. He is my light, my strength, my song. But pay attention particularly to the last verse. No guilt in life. 
No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Let us stand to sing.